It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Last week, union bosses made a grim declaration. Let's just bring you some breaking news regarding the RMT union, which is saying thousands of rail workers will stage three days of strike action later this month. This will be the biggest strike on Britain's railways since the 1980s, bringing the network close to a standstill. Next week, the country's railway network is set to grind to a halt as the Railway, Maritime and Transport Union stages three days of strikes. More than 40,000 railway workers will walk out, making it the biggest strike in a generation. Does this herald a new era of industrial action in Britain, especially if other unions start following suit? And what can the strikes of decades past Tell us about the challenges we face today. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Jenny Kleeman. Today, why are they striking? The signal is never good in the bowels of this building, is it? No. And the coffee. You'd think with journalists, (laughs) you'd think they'd get those two things right, but no. No, and the coffee, the good and the good-ish coffee is so expensive in here. But anyway, and was never available to me at the time of the morning when I needed it most, Patrick. <laughs> uh, right, amazing, cool, good to I'm go. Ready. Yeah, totally. My name is Patrick McGuire. I'm Redbox editor of the Times, and I cover all walks of life in Westminster and beyond. Let's talk about these strikes. We hear about strikes often, don't we? And whenever we hear them, we think, oh yeah, what else is new? When did you first realise that this was different? It's quite common for unions to wield the threat of strike action in their negotiations and then step down from the ledge once their negotiations have run their course. On this occasion, the RMT, the Rail, Maritime and Transport Union, which represents not the train drivers, but everybody else who works on the railways, balloted. And it's quite uncommon for for reasons of practicality. There are so many private rail companies. There are 15 private rail operators and network rail who manage the track. The chances we all thought of every single one of those constituent bodies that make up the railways, the privatised railways in this country, voting for strike action was going to be 
pretty slim. And the moment it became clear that we were perhaps entering a new era of industrial relations in this country came on the 25th of May when the RMT and all of its regional branches, with the exception of a couple, voted overwhelmingly in favour of a de facto national strike. At that point, it became clear that we were dealing with industrial unrest and a dispute on a scale and with different parameters than ones we've been familiar with really since the days of Margaret Thatcher, really. It is the first and biggest nationwide strike in the era of privatised railways, the biggest strike on the railways since 1989. So Patrick, who is striking and when? Well, just about everybody who works on the railways in England and Wales. The RMT is striking across the country. The tube drivers will be on strike too. Station staff uh, as well also. As left, the rail drivers union are going to be striking on a few lines as well. So it basically means for a week in June, technically they are only striking for three days, the 21st, the 23rd and the 25th. But given that disruption will carry over until the following days, and if the railways are stopping entirely, as is likely on many of these lines, the knock-on disruption, the unions think, will effectively knock out the entire rail service from functioning use for an entire week. And why is the the week they've chosen significant? Well, it's full of very big activities that people will be travelling across the country to get to. You've got Glastonbury, which I myself am now not taking the train to, Sadly, you've got a test match at Headingley in Leeds. You've got people getting trains across the country for examinations and a whole range of other stuff. You know, the Rolling Stones are playing at Hyde Park. The unions have deliberately picked this week so as to cause maximum disruption. And it is basically unprecedented that they're doing so on a nationwide scale. It's going to be incredibly difficult for commuters and leisure travellers to get around these strikes. How popular is the idea of these strikes among union members? Well, given that the ballots passed overwhelmingly, the answer is pretty popular, right? There are so many barriers in legislation to strikes taking place. You have to hit a pretty high threshold to get strike action going nowadays. And the reason why they're so popular is because they feel it's existential. The interesting thing about this dispute is it's not necessarily in protest at any concrete proposals. It's a almost a preemptive strike at the threat of swinging cuts to the railway. This isn't so much a strike that's about concrete demands. It's about what they don't want. They don't want job cuts. They don't want a modernised railway, if modernised is a euphemism for fewer boots on the ground, ticket offices closed across the country. And they don't want pay offers that aren't in line with inflation. If you take the inverse of all of that, they basically want something resembling the status quo. Since the pandemic, revenue has fallen. The government wants the railways to cut costs by 10% and the unions fear, how will that manifest itself? Well, they think they will reduce the number of staff at stations, for instance, even though there are not yet any concrete proposals to do so. They think when pay offers come in the coming year, they will be well below inflation. So the unions are flexing their muscles in advance of all that happening to ensure that there are fewer job cuts and they are reminding the rail operators of their strength. In terms of how we got to this point, have there been any negotiations? Well, if you listen to the government, you'll say 
the unions have walked out without having negotiated at all. And that's why ministers are striking such a hard line on this. They think this is a fit of a peak from militant unions who aren't interested in engaging with a Conservative government at all. If you speak to the unions, they'll say much the same thing. We don't want disruption. It's a hard road being a trade unionist and taking industrial action, but we feel we have no choice. They'll say this is a government that's hell-bent on slashing staffing on the railways and drastically cutting back services under the guise or pretense of the pandemic. The London mayor is attacking our people. He's attacking their pensions. He wants to make them poorer permanently, not just while they're at work, but while they're in retirement. It's exactly the same agenda that the government's putting forward through these funding negotiations with the companies and with the London mayor. We cannot sit idly by as a trade unionist while our, while our people are being attacked. So they're occupying pretty irreconcilable conditions. And while negotiations are still going on between the operators, the unions, and something called the Rail Delivery Group, which basically is a government body that coordinates the delivery of rail services across the country, I think all parties involved don't really see much mileage in them and think they're just basically going through the motions, running the clock down. And when you say the government is taking a hard line, what exactly do you mean? Well, I think it's pretty clear from what Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, and Grant Shapps, the Transport Secretary, have had, is that they're not willing to play ball and engage with this debate on the union's terms. For instance, when Boris Johnson gave his great premiership relaunch speech in Blackpool at the start of June. Hello, hello, hello. hello. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you very much. He was very clear that he believed the unions were dinosaurs, that their demands to keep ticket offices open and maintain current levels of staffing were a throwback to the days of British Rail. It's time for us to grasp the nettle of reform and move sensibly and responsibly to the end of some outdated working practices. There are fully manned ticket offices in this country that barely sell a ticket a week. He wasn't prepared to countenance any good faith explanation they might offer because, you know, he's a prime minister who's been bruised by his days negotiating with the RMT and closing ticket offices on the tube in London. Indeed, he even cited that example in Blackpool. Ten years ago, as chairman of Transport for London, I moved to take advantage of new ticket offices by closing uh, ticket offices on the, uh, on the underground. It was initially painful and the union chiefs predict, predicted catastrophe, uh, but we successfully made the argument that staff were better and more productively deployed on the platforms interacting with the public. And the time has come to do the same thing across the transport network. The union barons will uh, protest, but the winners, the winners will be railway staff, whose industry will be placed on a much sounder long-term footing, and the fair-paying public. So clearly you have a union that is situated well to the left of the mainstream of British politics and a government whose sense of identity, for better or worse, has been forged through its ideological ancestors battles with unions and indeed the Prime Minister's own, they're never going to be completely on the same page. What about the Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps? I mean, what has he been suggesting might happen? Grant Shapps has taken a very interesting stance throughout all of this. He's perhaps been less strident in his tone than Boris Johnson, but he has suggested that agency workers could be brought in to break the strike and keep the railways running, which is a very interesting suggestion given that when P&O, 
a ferry company, sacked all of its workforce wholesale and suggested bringing in agency workers to fill its own ferries and keep those services running. He was at the vanguard of calls starting to stop and suggesting they were going to pass legislation to make that illegal. So it's exposed a lot of interesting tensions in the Conservative Party's ideological and electoral priorities, I think. Tell us a bit about the union leaders. Who are they? Well, you can't understand the RMT and the place it occupies in the psyche of the British public, the people of London, and indeed the Conservative and Labour Party without understanding its late leader, Bob Crowe. We've been told today that the government has lent £325 billion to the bankers in so-called quantitative easing. Now, I don't know what quantitative easing means. That's not the sort of discussions that I have when I go home at night. I don't use the words like derivatives. You know, it's not the sort of uh, the questions uh, you have when you get home at night. Hello, sweetheart, how are you? How's your quantitative easing been today? How'd you fancy an earlier night for a bit of derivatives when we get upstairs? I mean, I don't know what kind of conversations people have. Bob Crow was a burly, shaven-headed former railway engineer who uh, ascended the ranks of the unions before becoming its general secretary in 2002. Given he died in 2014 of a heart attack, it might seem weird to be talking about him now, but he really defined the RMT as we now see it as one of the most effective, if aggressive, unions still operating in British politics. You know, he really was a trade union leader of the old school, of the kind we saw in the 1970s. People who looked like they could work on a nightclub door, but could also freely quote reams of das Kapital at you. I just wonder when you look at it, whether you don't think you'll see the future of work, you see the marginalised role of trade unions in many areas of life, whether you don't feel you just belong in a different time. Well, no, I belong in 2014. You're a dinosaur. Well, you know, at the end of the day, uh, that was around for a long while. When people join a trade union, in our view, they do for one thing and one thing only. Job security, being safe, best possible pay, best possible conditions, decent pensions, and a world that lives in peace. That's what we strive for. And if we're not going to put that on the agenda, who else is going to? He is very much situated on the hard left of British politics, a communist, a Brexiteer, occupied a very strange ideological space where he could at once talk about the Cuban revolution, but also call for capital punishment and Brexit, you know, a very idiosyncratic and old-fashioned ideological space. He was so famous and so renowned and so feared because he was so incredibly effective and pursued such a hardline negotiations with Transport for London and is part of the reason, indeed perhaps the only exclusive reason, why tube drivers enjoy such a handsome pay and benefits package now is because of the hardline taken by Bob Crow. And Bob Crow, when when Boris Johnson was mayor, he locked horns with him. Yes, repeatedly over Again, that aforementioned attempt to shut the ticket offices, you know, they would often end up clashing. Suspend it for well, a week, well, Bob. You, come you, on, you, take up you, John Crow's offer, man or on, mouse. On, hold on They're not John Crow, John Snow. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> I'm amalgamating you. <laughs> hold, on, hold on one second. The fact of the matter is, Boris, uh, I phoned you today and I told you, and I'll say to you on the camera tonight, I totally respect your position as Mayor of London, uh, even though I don't disagree with you. You're the democratically elected mayor. You've never met this trade union once in seven years. That's right? not true. You're the you one know that's not true. I've said, had regular meetings with the no, RMT. You, no, I, no, yes, I have. no, you've not. Yes, no, I you've have. not. You've, well, no, you've not. I think there was a perhaps a grudging respect between the two of them. I recall Boris Johnson did offer a measured eulogy for Bob Crow when he passed. But, you know, this was 
one of the defining battles of Boris Johnson's mayoralty, in his view, modernising the tube network, in Bob Crow's view, cutting the tube network and running it on the cheap. These two men were at the vanguard of an industrial battle on both sides. And for Boris Johnson, I think there is definitely a sense of unfinished business with a union he couldn't quite ever fully overcome in London. Now he's facing a battle on a nationwide scale. And crucially, the economic context is much, much more challenging than it ever was for him in the capital. Let's talk a bit now about the response to the news that unions had voted to strike. You've told us a bit about the government response. What's been the wider Conservative response to this news? Well, the wider Conservative response to this news has been twofold. You have those who are disappointed that the Conservative Party has not done more to make these strikes impossible. Now, given that the Conservative Party won an 80-seat majority in 2019, the pandemic notwithstanding, you'd think they might have found time to fulfil that crucial piece of unfinished business of Boris Johnson's and indeed the Conservative Party's more widely, which is making it more difficult for the trade unions, their historical bete noir, to strike and bring public services to a halt. Indeed, there was a crucial piece of legislation in their manifesto in 2019 that would have introduced something called minimum service requirements. They're already in place in the EU and they require rail operators to maintain a minimum degree of service even in the event of industrial action. And some Tory MPs, like Hugh Merriman, who's the chair of the Transport Select Committee, are bewildered that it's taken Boris Johnson until now, until the point at which he faces the prospect of a national rail strike, to start talking about that legislation. But the second school of thought in the Conservative Party, despite the disruption that the public will face, is sort of more interesting in that they're treating this as a massive political opportunity to have a pop at the Labour Party. What will be useful in supporting the UK economy right now will be if if the leader of the Labour Party ended his sphinx-like silence about the RMT strikes coming up in the course of the next couple of weeks. Uh, Will he now now break with his shadow transport secretary and denounce Labour's rail strikes? Obviously, the Labour Party is the party of organised Labour, in theory and constitutionally, And the Tories are already using this as an opportunity to bash Keir Starmer as an extremist who's in league with the decidedly further left leaders of the RMT and the Aslef trade unions. In the words of one source close to Keir Starmer, it's a very Australian kind of mudslinging politics. So how have Labour reacted? Because as you say, it is difficult territory for the party. Yes, well, you know, it depends who you ask in the Labour Party. Keir Starmer has said he doesn't want the strikes to go ahead. He's in government. He could do something to stop the strikes, but he hasn't lifted a finger. I don't want the strikes to go ahead, but he does. Now, you can read that in many ways. You could say, well, he's having a pop at the government for not giving in to the union's demands and ensuring that their jobs won't be cut and they'll get a good in line with inflation, pay off it. Or you could read it as he's having a pop at the Rail Maritime and Transport Union for not being reasonable and for even considering these hugely disruptive strikes. Now, as you've already been able to tell, their line at the minute is all things to all people. Now, that's because they desperately want to seem like a responsible party of government, but they also can't afford to cheese off the trade unions. You have people like Lisa Nandy, the shadow levelling up secretary. 
Thanks. And joining us from Westminster, we have the Shadow Secretary of State for Housing and Living Up, Lisa Nandy. Good morning to you, Lisa Good Nandy. Morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. Lots to talk to you about. I'm sure you've Who says she always wants to stand with the workers. If they can't come to a conclusion that is mutually acceptable on both sides, you will be supporting those rail workers going on strike? Look, I've, I've stood with our, our rail workers just like I stood with junior doctors when they um, protested against the treatment that was being meted out to them by the government and our nurses as well. The way that you create good public services and a good service for the public is not to attack the people who run those services, who work day in, day out, in order to try and keep them going. The way that you do it is to support them. People like Wes Streeting, the Shadow Health Secretary, who despite being uh, further to the right of the party than most of the Shadow Cabinet, will say, look, if I was a rail worker, I'd like to go on strike. And you have this sense of confusion. You have this sense of confusion that the Labour Party doesn't know whether it wants to stand on the picket lines with the RMT or it wants to condemn them and say, look, we're no longer the party of trade unionism and disruptive strikes. Centre-left, yes, but not, not a tub-thumping, the union-funded party of old. And look, that's a perennial question the Labour Party has always faced, but they seem no closer to answering it in a clear voice than they have before. Isn't it complicated for them in, in, in terms of their funding that some of these unions contribute a significant amount of money to the Labour Party? Yeah, exactly. The interesting thing about this particular strike is that some trade unions, as you say, are affiliated to the Labour Party and others are not. The RMT is not affiliated to the Labour Party. So it doesn't donate cash to the Labour Party. It isn't obliged to support Labour candidates. ASLEF, the Rail Drivers Union, is, but it's never been a massive donor. But yes, it's affiliated to the Labour Party. The bigger piece here is the broader question of what sort of relationship does Keir Starmer want to have with the trade unions he is affiliated to. If Labour wants to pick a fight with one union, it will inevitably have a knock-on effect for its relations with others, which is why despite the born-again hammer-of-the-left tone Keir Starmer has taken in his dealings with people like Jeremy Corbyn, you see a great degree of squeamishness from the leader of a party that is struggling financially to pick a fight with a union on such a high-profile issue. Coming up... For the prospect of big nationwide strikes to be looming ahead again is a blast from the past in many respects. And both parties, I think, thought these days had probably passed. But first... I'm Mariella Frostrup, and every day on my show on Times Radio, we speak to some of the biggest names in the world of the arts, culture and politics. We bring you discussions about new social trends and all the latest news, views and interviews. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, so Patrick, we keep hearing this phrase again and again that this is due to be the, the biggest railway walkout since 1989. So tell us what happened in 1989. Well, interestingly, the employees then found themselves in a similar position. They wanted higher pay and they balloted for strike action. And for six weeks, the railways were severely disrupted. The combination of branch lines and intercity services makes Exeter's St David station the busiest in the southwest. Normally, up to 300 trains a day pass through here. That's 8,000 passengers or more using the station. Today, it's at a complete standstill. Until the uh, British Rail offered an 8.8% pay rise. So if we're thinking about now, when inflation is running at 10%, the numbers we're discussing are quite similar they were offered a 8.8% pay rise and after six weeks ended their prolonged period of strike action. And given that the union are threatening not just a week of strikes in June, but rolling strikes throughout the summer, there are some parallels there. After 1989, there was another period of nationwide strikes in 1994 when signalers went on strike. But that was the last time we saw a walkout on this scale that we will see in the coming weeks if the strike is not averted. So... Why are these kinds of strikes so politically incendiary? The relationship between politics and trade unionism in this country has been an incredibly fraught one for both political parties, both main political parties, since the 1970s. Friday, the 7th of January, the last shift at Armthorpe near Doncaster, and the beginning of the miners' first national strike for nearly 50 years. Their last was the general strike of 1926. Since that intense period of industrial unrest, to a large extent driven by, as it will be now, high inflation, demands for wage increases in line with inflation that nationalised industries felt obliged to provide because they were, by their very nature, monopolistic, and so the unions had the power to bring swathes of the national economy to a halt. It brought down one Conservative Prime Minister in Edward Heath, who was obviously brought low by the minor strikes of the early 1970s and then went to the country in 1974 asking, who governs Britain? The implicit question there being, is it your elected government or the trade unions? And the answer came back from the British public, well, since you can't manage it, probably not you. In order to create the one nation that you talk about, any future government is going to have to deal with the trade unions. Do you think that the climate has been made better for those talks by the kind of union bashing that has been going on from you during this election? There hasn't been any union bashing from me at all, of any kind. I would challenge you to point to any single remark I've made which is union bashing. I have pointed out in every speech we have no quarrel with the unions, none at all. And then obviously Jim Callaghan, the Labour government that followed after Harold Wilson's short stint as Prime Minister, again, the winter of discontent of 1978, saw trade unions across the country walk out, bring swathes of the public sector to a halt. That period of unrest is seen by many modernisers in the Labour Party as having put them out of power for 
18 years. And indeed, Margaret Thatcher saw trade unionism as one of the reasons why the country needed the short, sharp, monetarist shock that she gave it, tightening trade union legislation. She had that generational confrontation with the miners in 1984. Mr Chairman, what we have seen in the past few weeks is not picketing at all. It is intimidation. It is unlawful assembly. Our duty demands and the national interest requires that we see that violence does not pay and is seen not to pay. Which was really the death knell for industrial unrest on this scale. If you think about how both political parties see themselves, if you're on the left of British politics, either you think, yes, the Labour Party was right to recast itself as a party that wasn't in hock to trade unions and saw that the country had changed from the days of nationalised industry in the 1940s and 50s. Or you see yourself as people like Jeremy Corbyn and his fellow travellers on the left do. You see that as a historic mistake. The decision the parties made over their relations with trade unions have shaped their identity. Ditto, if you're a conservative, you see Margaret Thatcher's war with organised trade unionism in this country in the 1980s as one of the many things she did to, in their eyes, make this country, one, governable, two, economically vibrant and productive, again, as the Tory version of history would have it. So for the prospect of big nationwide strikes to be looming their head again is a blast from the past in many respects. And both parties, I think, thought these days had probably passed, which means they are, in the Labour Party, viewing it with a sort of sense of sheer panic because it's a question that many people around Labour leadership have thought have doomed the party before. And if you're a Conservative, well, you're approaching this question with real zeal because you think, what is this party for if not to crush the unions? The interesting question is whether this is merely the beginning of a new era of mass walkouts, particularly on the railways, because given the collapse of rail revenue during the pandemic, the old model of privatisation where the government issued franchises to the highest bidder, if you're a private company, you would bid to run part of the railways at commercial risk and try and reap back the money you'd spent, the billions you'd spent bidding to run the West Coast mainline or the East Coast mainline from the government in ticket revenues. Given that ticket revenues have collapsed, the government has um, turned that system on its head. Grand Shapps is is going to bring in a new organisation called Great British Railways that will instead pay train operators a fixed fee to run concessions at no commercial Risk And the interesting question is, will this sort of semi-renationalised railway, there'll still be private operation, but it won't be at commercial risk, there won't be that sort of element of market competition in the operation of the railways, will that return to a quasi-nationalised system, make it easier for companies to strike in future? And will, in allowing these strikes to go ahead on both sides, will a precedent have been set whereby industrial action becomes a fact of life on our railways again. That's one of the essay questions. The other is, does this change Labour's relations with the unions if we're now 
entering an age of industrial unrest on the railways and, and more broadly in the country. And Patrick, this is bigger than just the rail unions, isn't it? Are we in for a long, hot summer of strikes? I think that is the risk. And long, hot summer, as sultry as it sounds, is the phrase that Gary Smith, the uh, leader of the GMB, Britain's third largest, largest trade union, himself used. And we know from analysis by The Times that a million workers, a million unionised workers, are going to go on strike or be balloted for strike action this summer. For instance, the postal services, you have bin collections, and indeed bin collectors in the Midlands have been engaged in strike action for quite some time. You have healthcare as well is particularly vulnerable to strikes. Basically, any public service is more likely to have a heavily unionised workforce and thus in this era of cost of living spiralling, is going to be uniquely vulnerable to strike. So any public service you can think of are going to be at least thinking about going on strike to secure those pay deals. The Tories, I'm sure, would call this a new age of union militancy. Labour wouldn't know what to call it. Uh, And the unions would say they're doing their job in the teeth of massive inflation. And it puts everybody in the country and in the economy in a difficult position. With inflation running as high as it is, and there is very little sign that that's going to abate anytime soon, then relations between trade unions, employers and the government are naturally going to become a lot more tense. They were fraught enough when inflation was running between 1% and 2%. When they're running at 10% and You have the government of the Bank of England calling for pay restraint for fear of stoking further inflation. You have a government that doesn't want to be seen to give in to the unions. You have a Labour Party that's terrified to be connected with the unions but also doesn't want to upset the unions. Then it's almost a perfect storm to make this long, hot summer of trade union action as politically disruptive and destructive as possible. been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, Jenny Kleeman, and my guest, Times Redbox editor, Patrick Maguire. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel with production help from Amy Leibowitz. The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design was by David Crackles. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. And if you've learned anything from this episode, please do give us a quick rating. It helps others find us. Have a good weekend. Mm-hmm.